we go. Hello, my friends. Hello, my life warriors. Wherever you are in the world, welcome to the Day In, Day Out podcast. Woo! Today on episode ha -ha, 292, I am very lucky, privileged to have Farah Marani on the podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. She is an actor, educator, artist, advocate. And yes, she has appeared on a number of shows. Let's just say Apple's TVC, NBC's Quantum Leap, mm, the new one. Haven't seen that yet. Mm -hmm. I'll get there. But yes, how are you today? Mm. I am very, very well. Thank you for asking. I'm delighted to be here and <laughs> graced with your royal presence. Well, you see, the like the bribery always works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> evidence I have on her life. It, yes, does it, does it all. Mm, say no more. <laughs> that's why she's taking a quick note. <laughs> but that's another story. Yeah. Now, would I be right in saying, like, if your parents had their way, you would not be an actress today? <laughs> Oh my days, like 100% yes. 100% yes. I mean, look, my mom likes to say that the first time she really felt me kick was in a salsa dance class. So that told her that I love to dance from a very early age. That's that's the story she likes to tell. That I've always been a dancer. And I have, and I've always loved to dance. I've always loved to perform. Um, I just don't think my parents because it was not something that they had ever seen, I don't think that they believed that a career as an artist, an actor, a performer was a viable career path, as I'm sure a lot of parents, <coughs> um, especially immigrant parents, right? Uh, also medical professionals. Both my parents are medical professionals. So the idea that I would pursue a career as an artist was a little incongruous at first. I think they had a hard time wrapping their head around the idea. So there was always a caveat um, for a very long time. It was, first of all, it was a hobby. We do it for fun. It helps you become an all-rounded student. It's good for college applications, right? That kind of thing. Um, and I was very much, as, as a teenager, I was very much being groomed to be, you know, that kind of like head CEO of something or... Yeah, I don't know, run my own business or take over my family business, something. Um, but I was I was never pulled in that direction. Like I always wanted to be on stage. I always wanted to write or to dance. And and finally, uh my dad, <laughs> it was mainly my dad, uh, he said to me, because I basically I lied, <laughs> I lied to my parents about what I was applying to universities with. So I told them that I was applying to English and communication programs, but I, what they didn't realize, I had written everything in pencil because we did it together. And, um, oh, wait, that's the culprit. Yes. <laughs> He's like, checking it. Okay. Hang on one second. Let me just, oh. Okay, I'll start that over again. Oh no, um, I, I, I continue. So, on. yeah. Um, 
So what happened was I lied on my application for universities and I had filled in everything in pencil with them. And then when I got to school, I changed all the universities and I changed all the majors and I applied to the, like in Ontario, in Canada, you apply on this one form and you write down your three top choices of universities and then your three majors. Yeah. And so I changed everything to reflect the top three universities with drama departments. And I wrote down theater department, theater department, theater department. Um, and then fast forward, you know, two months, a month, whatever. I started getting letters in the mail inviting me to audition from these schools. And my dad came home with the mail one day <laughs> and he was like, Farah, why do you have a letter from Concordia? And Concordia University was one of is one of the best theater schools. And I was like, oh, to audition. And he was like, audition, <laughs> what? <laughs> and I was like, uh, so funny story. <laughs> I, uh, I I applied for drama programs and he was like, what? You did what? Um, so then I had to convince him that if I went to drama school, it would also be beneficial for me for law school because that was kind of the trajectory that I was on. It's like, you know, theater is really good for public speaking and for thinking on your feet and whatever. Um, so then he, he said to me straight up, he was like... Well, Farah, for your first degree, you can do what you like, but you must get a first degree. And then for your second degree, then we talk. And I was like, I just bought myself four years. <laughs> um, so I, I did. I, I went to drama school in Toronto, yeah. I went to the University of Toronto. Uh, and by my by the end of my second year into my third year, I was like, this is this is what I need to do. Like, I don't I don't want to go to law school. I don't want to go to business school. Like, I want to I want to be an actor and be an artist. And so I I came home for the Thanksgiving holiday and I sat my dad down and I was all nervous. I'm like, OK, here we go. So, Dad, I decided that I'm not going to go to law school after this. And the only way you're ever going to see me as a lawyer is the day you see me on Law and Order. How did that go? <laughs> to be honest, I think he was part proud of my wit and part in shock because he was stunned. I don't think he was expecting to hear that, especially in that way. And he said, okay, we'll see. That was his answer. And then the amazing thing is, and this is where I have to give him, I've always said he's my biggest fan. Uh -huh. The turnaround happened. I graduated. I started doing what, like I started working and I started doing well. Then I hit a bit of a slump and my brother had gone to England for pharmacy school. And I've always loved Shakespeare and obviously theater. And so my dad came in and there was a bit of an intervention and he was like, uh, if this is what you really want to do, then you need to go train with the best. You need to be surrounded by the best. <clears throat> then I was like, okay, then I'm going to look at drama schools in England. And I did. And I auditioned and I, I got into all the schools I tried out for. And then I got to make my decision and I moved to London and I went to drama school for two years. And then I lived in London for about six years 
Um, and and that was sorry. Part of London, did you live in? Um, so I landed in Old Street. Uh-huh. Our, our 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 campus was in Farringdon, so it was in walking distance of of school. So I landed in Old Street, stayed there for two years, and then I moved further east to closer towards Bethnal Green, Cambridge Heath. Yes. And then after that, I moved around quite. I was there for two and a half years, and then I moved around quite a bit. I was in uh, Shoreditch. I was in Columbia, like Columbia Road, the flower market. I was right behind there for a while. Um, I lived with some friends in Shadwell, and then I was back in Columbia Road, and then I ended up moving back to Canada. <laughs> you were, yeah. Uh, this way, you were pretty much almost in my old stomping grounds. Uh, oh, really? Uh, yes, when I was still in London. Yeah. Yeah. So I was Where were you? What were, what were your stomping grounds? I basically Angel, so just up the road. Uh, mm-hmm. Into the West End, into Shoreditch, uh, like no old street very well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, basically Farringdon. <clears throat> uh, like Farringdon was a bit of a weird one. It was really sort of hyper and busy at one point. And yeah. It calmed down. So I was yeah. often in the gate pub. Uh, like in Farringdon. Yeah. yeah. That's so great. Um, there was a pub that we used to go to called the Bowler's Green. Okay. It was just up from Old Street. Um, that was really lovely. That was one of our favorite places. Um, and then Leather Lane was like the lunch, the lunch market. They always had this wonderful lunch market with like food shops and, and fruit stalls and whatnot. Oh, you get very in the Shoreditch area. Uh, yeah. yeah. Trust me, trust me. Uh, where I work during the day now, uh, they move from being in Shoreditch to like being on, like just off Fleet Street. So yeah. like, yeah. Very different. Yeah, no, you don't get Very different vibe. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. Uh, that's so great. Six years in London. Like, yeah. did it surprise you that your dad did such a about face, a 180 on such a level? Um, yes and no. Yes, in my immaturity. No, in my retrospection. So I say in the moment as like the 20 something that I was, yes. it was super surprising. I was like, what, are you serious? My dad, and like my dad's other thing has always been the two most important, three most important things to invest in or to spend money on rather to give money to are uh, real estate, your education and charity. Those have always been like the three things to put your money in. And so when, whenever it came to any kind of education, my dad's always been like, if it's going to help you succeed in what you want to do, we will support you. If it's academic, if it's educational. So you know, I worked my butt off to save up as much money as I could in my last year of living in Toronto um, because we came up, we had this agreement that he would cover my, tu- my parents would cover my tuition, but then I would have to support myself and, um, you know, make my way that way. So we had this, we had this really wonderful agreement. And then my, my parents have always supported me when it came to my endeavors. And so when I, when I, when I, when you talk about an about face, I think one of the greatest blessings that I, I have received is that I have parents. If if I had just said, this is what I'm doing and I, and I don't care what you say, 
then I think there would have been a lot more friction, but because we, it was a constant series of negotiations with them. Mm. Um, and I, I don't, I think I did a pretty good job and it's partly because of how, how, excuse me, how I was raised. I think I did a pretty good job of like laying out the plan. Mm. So it was never like, I just, it may have felt like I made an immediate decision, but like I had always thought about it and, and had a, a bit of a strategy. Did it always work? No. Did I fall flat on my face multiple times? But when it came to like, for example, the telling my dad that I didn't want to go do a second degree in, in law, I had a bit of a plan. I was like, I am going to do this. I'm going to stay in Toronto. I'm going to work and I'm going to, my goal is this thing. And I'm going to work my butt off to get there. And then when that didn't work, I was like, okay, we, we recalibrate. And then, you know, that's when I had the conversation with my dad about what to do next, because basically I wanted to, I wanted to get into Canada's Shakespeare festival, which is called the Stratford festival. And I auditioned and I auditioned well, and then I tried to get into their conservatory program and I didn't get in, but then I got into all the drama schools in England. So I was like, am I going to fight for something that is not wanting me? Or am I going to go to the place where I'm wanted? So, you know, having my parents support through that, they, they're pretty remarkable in the, I think at the end of the day, they trusted my, my inner compass, whether they always approved of it, I think it was a different story, but you know, they, they let me, they let me go out into the world and, and make mistakes and, tried to keep me from making mistakes but I still made them but this is a very, you know? <laughs> yeah if you're not making mistakes you're not living life uh, Amen. you know <laughs> like, yeah. like it's one of those things when when every time I sort of hear the realm of immigrant parents and if you're the first generation being brought up in whatever new land that might be like yes they're sort of okay doctor, lawyer, engineer, like, yeah. yeah, you are going to do something practical to, yeah. Like, yeah, to like, oh, this is the reason why we came here. To yeah. then like go, yeah, you know what? <laughs> Mama, Papa, I, I want <laughs> to be an actor. <laughs> kind, of, kind of is one of those things which you're like, I, they're like, Wait, what? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny, I think there's something actually, if I can add to, I think there was an element of pride that they took. Mm. So I was in this, I did this one show over a summer and we toured across Canada, excuse me. And it was incredibly successful. We had sold out houses. Um, and so my parents came to the the show in their town called, they live in Ottawa. Yeah. So they came and a bunch of their friends came, like they rallied the troops to come and see this show. And they were like, my parents have always been proud to see me perform. Always, always, always. But this one, I think was, this moment was especially meaningful to them because they had so much of their own community coming to see this particular show. And so many people went up to them afterwards and were like, it's so amazing that you've supported Farah in, in a career in the arts. Like it must've been such a, brave thing for you to support her and like just giving them all this praise for supporting me in in this 
And I think there's an element of like, wow, like we did, we did good. Yeah. People don't do this very often. And, and, and I, I also recognize that too, that I have a family that does support me so wholeheartedly. And I, you know, I felt guilty for that for a long time. Like I carried this little bit of guilt that like, what did I do to deserve such amazing parents? And like went into this tailspin for, you know, a little bit in my twenties at a certain point, but I got out of it basically when I realized like, this is the greatest blessing that I've been given in my life. One of the greatest blessings is that I have a family that just believes in me and supports me and wants to see me do well in whatever I do. Yeah. But like, this is the thing, like, like just meeting you and like, they are, like most probably going to confirm this as we talk a little bit further, just meeting you, getting an idea and a feel of your character. You don't come across as someone which, I would say is airy fairy when it comes to like actually engaging with a plan and like going ahead with it. So it's yeah. one of those things which I would say would give your parents, like, even though they would be concerned, <laughs> but, but they would be actually like, okay, yeah, you are much more of a practical, uh, like, yeah. well thought out person so that's what would give them confidence in doing that because okay yeah okay uh maybe a little bit deceptive with how you manage to apply uh to university in canada mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. but to like go right i want to like go do this festival in canada that's not working out but to then go right go to like the united kingdom to study for was it two years like you were over here in the UK for six years was that all study or was that no no it was um it was basically a two-year program continuous yeah so we didn't have we didn't have a summer break we worked through the summer so it was effective it was a 40 uh 42 week program two-year programs are 44 week programs so you know we took holidays at Christmas Easter we had a short summer break but we didn't take two months off in the summer and then come back in September. We finished at the end of that academic year. Mm. So it was effectively 18 months, but it was a two-year program. Yeah, but two years, bam. Like, did you do any acting work in the UK? Or was I it- did. Ah. Yeah, I did quite a bit, actually. Really? Yeah. Like, because this is the thing, with regards to like the UK, like mm-hmm. its acting heritage and everything like this, it is, one of those things where, okay, if you're a, if you're an up and coming actor, you do like you do shows here and there, but it's like, yeah, you're kind of like, okay, uh, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Off I go. So, like, let me see if I can make it in America. What did you like? What was your kind of experience like with getting acting jobs in the UK? How was it? Oh, that's a great question. It was a very uh, multifaceted experience. So there were some really, really wonderful and exciting things that I, I was afforded because I was North American, Canadian American and South Asian or Asian, as you say, in, in the UK. Um, so I, I realized that's actually where I realized that I have, um, I have certain opportunities available to me because of my identity, because of who I am, Mm -hmm. um, that I didn't realize when I was living in Canada. 
Um, so I, it took me a little bit, it was a bit of a stumbling start, but then when I, once I had this realization, I, I made the decision to, to really embrace that. So part of it was really embracing my culture and my accent and my abilities, obviously. So I was able to do, I did a lot of physical theater work. So I ended, I found myself working with people who did a lot of devised creation. So I did workshops with, uh, there was this wonderful company, is this wonderful company called Frantic Assembly. Uh, there's another really amazing company called Punch Drunk. So I did a bunch of their workshops. Um, I worked with another collective and we did a series of shows underneath Waterloo Station. There are these giant, the tunnel, it was called the Tunnels by the Old Vic. So the Old Vic had acquired the tunnels underneath Waterloo Station and turned it into a giant performance space. Um, and uh, what opened this, what kicked off these spaces was actually really interesting. It was Banksy's documentary, Exit Through the Gift Shop. So they screened that there. Um, and then my introduction was Punch Drunk's production of Midsummer Night's Dream. So I went to go see that. And like you go through the down the stairs into the cavernous tunnels and you're taken literally transported. So I got super excited by site specific device and physical theater. So I really kind of jumped in with that, um, found whatever opportunities I could. I worked, there's a South Asian or an Asian theater company called Tara Arts. I started working with them and another one called Tamasha. Um, I, I worked with a few other, uh, the Arcola, I did some workshops with the Arcola. Um, and then we did this whole series of shows at the Old Vic Tunnels, which was, I mean, I've never been so filthy. I probably in <laughs> inhaled a, a toxic amount of archaic fumes. But Don't it worry, was, that was it just was the crazy. asbestos. It's okay. I know, right? Okay. I mean, I think, <laughs> I, if, if I'm not mistaken, the, the tunnels were only open for about three or four years before, or maybe more, maybe four or five uh, before they were shut down because of health and safety issues. Okay. If I don't see you running for a bus or a taxi anytime soon, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> like, my lung, like, how, what did the doctor <laughs> say? My lung capacity was severely compromised. <laughs> were you oh. living in a mine for us? <laughs> no, like, no, this no. is all, we only find this in minors. <laughs> Black lung. No, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I was I would come home from rehearsal or from the shows, yeah. and I would have like a lick of black all like just a black film all over my body, like my hands, my like my the back of my neck, especially. Just like I would be, I was like I was a chimney sweeper, right? It was disgusting. I would take my, my baths or my showers and like just this like black soot this gr grime would come up it was gross but it was also like the most amazing thing ever i'm just saying you're painting a glamorous picture that's the life of the artist right like it's it's not all glamour and blitz and so forth what? but it was so much fun what an amazing experience those were experiences those were so like what was the thing what made you up and like but you've done a two-year program you're doing some you're doing acting work over in the UK like what made you like oh you know what I like you the UK but it's not me it's you I got to go 
the British immigration system. Okay, there you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, so it was not by choice that I left by any means. So, okay. Uh. This is the this is the kind of condensed version of the story. So, my father was born in Kenya. Okay. When when Kenya was part of the British Commonwealth. Yeah. So, he he had a British passport. When he became a Canadian citizen, he relinquished his British passport, but then years later, he reapplied for it and he got it. So he he has a British passport and a Canadian passport. So when I went to the UK, I went on a student visa initially, but I was also applying for my British passport under him. Yes. Because of his status, right? So we thought we, as a family, we thought this was a brilliant solution to getting me into England. Because once I graduated, because it was about a two-year process, once I graduated, I would have my passport and I would be able to live and work and, and just be in the UK. Well, during that two-year period, the immigration system changed and the passport that I received was called an overseas passport, which is probably the most useless document because it gives me the only the only right it offers me is safe landing in the UK. So if I show up at a port and I show them that passport, they cannot turn me away. However, the passport gives me no access to work. I'm not allowed to work on it. No access to the NHS or any social services. I can't vote nothing. So really, it's a landing card. That's it. Mm. Okay. So I have this passport. Fine. At the time, there was uh, there was like a little loophole whereby if I applied for residency, after three years, I could apply for citizenship. So I was like, great, that's what I'll do. I'll apply for re- uh, like a permanent resident status. live my three years and off I go well at halfway through that they change it to five years so then I had to reapply for my I had to apply for an extension to my visa okay so now I'm looking at five years the five-year mark comes and they scrap the program altogether so now I'm into my sixth year of living in England they scrap this entire graduated citizenship system process and my visa finally expires and I have no right to stay I had put all of my this is I had put all of my belongings in a storage unit and went and traveled for a little bit because I was like well I just need to like leave so I went to India and I spent two months in India and then I came back and my girlfriend and I had decided we were going to move to Stoke Newington together and Um, I was auditioning for Punch Drunk and I had made it into their company and they were starting a show in the spring. So I was like, great, this is going to be awesome for my next visa application. Mm -hmm. My immigration lawyer recommended that I go back to Canada and reapply as a from Canada, which is what I had to do. I had no other options, but I had this potential job offer. So I was like, "I'm, I'm in good standing. So I come back to Canada with a suitcase and I expedited the processing. I paid for the difference so they could process my application more swiftly. I waited the six weeks. There was no results. I waited eight weeks, nothing. 
Then I had a conversation with the director and he was like, are you going to be coming back in May? I was like, well, I, I haven't booked a ticket yet because I haven't got my visa yet. And he goes, well, if you're if you're not here, you, you can't be in the show. I'm like, OK, well, give me till the end of like, give me till the end of this week or next week, because it's, it's been nine weeks now. It should it should be here. Anyway, the, the bloody thing didn't show up. I wasn't able to go back to England to do this job so that nullified my visa because the job was a part of the application and I was prohibited and barred from re-entering the UK for two years. So my entire life was in a storage unit in Stoke Newington. I was in Toronto with a suitcase and I I was like, and I was living on my, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. Bless her. She let me stay with her for as long as I needed. And then finally I was like, well, I'm not going back to the UK anytime soon. So I, I got to start making some lemonade because this is otherwise this is going to suck royally. So I, 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 I cried a lot. I threw my hands into the air and punched the punched the walls a couple times and then realized okay well i'm here i've got to i've got to figure something out i've got to get a job i've got to get an agent i've got to find some place to live and figure out what's happening with all my stuff in england and uh pivoted stayed in toronto had my stuff shipped to me i had wonderful friends who took care of all my belongings um took what they wanted because I told them take whatever you want like <laughs> the least amount of stuff that you need to ship is better so they took what they wanted and then shipped the rest and uh, after my first full year in Toronto my first full winter I should say cool. I was like I I can't do this full time I this is not the place for me I I don't want to be here because winter just makes me miserable being cold makes me miserable you're in the wrong country (laughs) I was 100% in the wrong country so then long and short I you know a year later made the decision that I was gonna figure out a way to get to Los Angeles to get to the states and uh, rather than going for a visa this time I went straight for my green card which is the permanent residency right and uh, I you know took me two years but I got it and then in 2018, I moved here. There you go. There's my my life story. <laughs> uh, like, you know, I hear you. I, I was going to ask why you picked LA, but like, yeah, we'll come to that in a second. But when right, it comes right. to the UK and mm-hmm. immigration, let's just say, yeah, like the country I call home, the country I was born and raised in, uh, is not the best when it comes to that type of things look just ask people who are in the wind rush uh generation and they will most probably tell you many a tale of woe and terror let's just say and with regards to that sort of visa changing i had one of my like one of my best mates who's now like came over from australia and uh, he managed to get in on an ancestral visa and i think it was not his grand but his great grandmother he managed to get in just on that and about two years later they changed it 
so he wouldn't have been able to get in. But it was like, uh, they keep shifting the goalposts on that. Yeah, that's it. Honestly, that is exactly what it felt like. I was like, there were every single time I was like perfectly lined up for a shot, and then they moved it, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, okay recalibrate, re reset, got all my things in order. I'm like, I got the, I'm, I'm in, I got this, and then they moved it again. <laughs> like, yeah, and you know, I go back to one of my mentors said this to me when I was leaving Toronto. When I didn't get into Stratford and I got into all the drama schools in England, he said to me, Farah, you need to go where you're wanted. And that's why I ended up going to the UK because, I mean, I got into every drama school I auditioned for in London or in England, I should say. And I didn't get into the two schools in in Canada that I wanted to go to. Like, it just blew my mind. And then fast forward six years I'm being kicked out of the country that I had like become the artist that I am, become the woman that I am and like laid down the seeds of my future there. And then all of a sudden they're going, nope, bye, we don't want you. And like, so not even just like shooing me away. It was like a slam door shut. Like do not come back for two years. Yeah. And it was, it was on my record. My brother got married about three years later, thankfully he waited the two years, but eventually he got married and he got married in the UK because his, his wife is British. And I landed in, at Heathrow at seven o'clock in the morning. I didn't get out of the airport for four and a half hours because at customs, they saw this big red X on my profile. They sequestered me, put me in a corral, interrogated me made sure that I had a return ticket and that I had, I had, I had a job, but I didn't do the job because of my brother's wedding, but I had the offer and the contract on my phone and I showed them that job. I was like, look, see, I have to go back for work next week. <laughs> um, and then it happened again later that year. Cause I went back for another friend's wedding and the same thing happened and bless that border guy because he he cleared it. So then the subsequent times I've I've been to the UK, I haven't had issues. But it was it was awful. And like there's nothing worse than feeling like you're a criminal when you haven't done anything wrong. Like what other people making you feel that way, just because they're in a position to do so. It is the worst feeling ever. I am so much more sensitive to it now, especially living in the States. Because that's the culture here. It's crazy. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's very palpable. Yeah, well, like, this is the thing. Like, in some regards, you could say it was the universe sort of guiding you to the sort of next step. Because, like, this is the thing. Like, to be able to, like, oh, okay, yeah. You can... Where my where I saw my life being for the next like yeah twenty years per year maybe however long it was going to be it was like yeah definitely for the next five years is now over done with I can't do anything then to be sort of like forced to come back to Canada and then like okay time to pick everything back up and it's not like when you're talking about the acting world from what I understand of it. You can't, it's not like you can fill in an application, like it's <laughs> like going to the gap and like, there you go. 
and you're working. It's a whole process of then like going, finding an agent, then that agent find like, well, if you can find the agent, if they've got open books and then them shipping you out to different places, it's a very sort of long run time before you can actually get work. So, you know what I mean? Doing that sort yeah. of survival mode, then sort of, I can only imagine changing all your money and your accounts back into Canadian from the UK. It just a real chore, hassle, large obstacles, I imagine. Uh, all of the above. Now, the, the blessing underneath it all is I used to go back to Canada on a regular basis. And every time I'd go back, and also because I went to drama school, I had friends who were going off and doing things in town. And whenever I would come back, I would, you know, reconnect with them and, and see what they were doing. A lot of them started getting more into TV and film. Um, so there were like, you know, people doing things kind of slowly around me every time I'd come back to visit. Um, and my, my bank accounts remained open. I didn't close them. So like, I always had like my, my, the basis of my life, the foundations of my life have always been in Canada. It was closing my accounts in the UK and figuring out what to do with just all the stuff there that I like at a certain point, I think I just gave up and I was like, well, if the government needs anything for me, they know where to find me or maybe they don't, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. Um, it was, what was really challenging was coming back to Canada and realizing that the bulk of my experience in the UK didn't translate. I maybe I totally naively assumed that because I had this incredible body of work that I was so proud of in the UK. Like I worked with the RSC. I did workshops with um, the old Vic. I got to perform at the Haymarket theater. Like I did really, really cool stuff, but it didn't translate. I remember I auditioned for this company and I made a comment of, um, oh, I made a reference to something, to a theater and the guy had no idea what that theater was. And I just remember going, how is there so much disconnect? Like in the UK, this particular theater company was such a big deal. And yet this little Canadian theater company, like they don't know. And I was just so blown away. And I thought I was so confident that Stratford and Shaw would come wanting me now because I had all of this experience and I had, I'd gone to Russia and I did, I did Chekhov in Moscow. Like I, you know, I came with all this excitement and, and love for the work and it was radio silence, like tumbleweeds. There was nothing, there was no reception. And it really, it really shocked my system. I, I was not definitely not prepared for that. Um, what it shifted in me though, was I, and okay, so also because I had friends there, I was able to take meetings with agents through the, my friends. So then I did end up having three options that I got to choose from. And I was very grateful that I, I was able to get an agent right away because then I started doing, going out for more TV work. And I realized, I mean, I already knew this, but I started making way more money doing TV than I was making theater. 
Right, surprise. Sherlock. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Um, <clears throat> so I started, I started doing a lot more TV work and it was that, it was a synergy of that realization, the commercial, commercial viability of who I am and the winter that I was like, I can't, I don't want to stay here. All of the decisions for this part of the industry are made in LA. I need to start car carving out a presence in LA. So then I started coming down here first for pilot season, which is usually February, March. So I would come down for a few months. Pilot season is brutal. <laughs> I hear, I hear, I hear Not so much anymore. It's, it's shifted now. But like once upon a time, it was bananas. Like I I was thrown into the fire my first year, my first year represented. Yeah. And just going from one studio to the next studio to the next in one day, like my whole day was driving. And it was exactly what, if you've heard stories about what pilot season was like, it is exactly like that. It was bonkers. Um and crazy that people actually thrive during that. Um, now it's not so much the same because of all the streaming platforms. The, the shows are not concentrated in the networks. So they actually green light shows all year round, not just during this particular time of the year. So, and also the way that people are casting is has shifted. It's no longer like movie uh, movie stars do movies and then TV stars do TV. There's so much more crossover now. So it just means that there's more like star casting in TV, which means there's less, um, you know, roles of it. There are less roles available for other actors and, and so forth. So it's like the whole market essentially has shifted yeah. as a result. Because like, this is a thing, like, and I... I'm not part of the industry in any way, but like things I've observed from like, I like one of my best boys, he works as a, an extra and I basically, yeah. Oh God, why he is a SAG union mm -hmm. extra. Started at the bottom. He's like, oh, you're extra. Yeah. Uh, are you in the union? No. Oh, well, <laughs> you do. Oh, there you go. Sweet little boy. Yeah. But, That's a tough slog, too. Yeah, tough slog. But, like, the way I look at the sort of Hollywood system, even though it's Hollywood located, but there's New York, Georgia, from where you see all of the, at the end of that, and basically Vancouver, like... And I've, Toronto. And Toronto, yeah. <laughs> but, like, this is the thing. Much of the TV production, because it's slightly cheaper, is done <laughs> in Canada. And yes, LA for every like everything else. I think there might be one place, one or two places I'm in, I might be missing. Mm -hmm. But there is like a sort of quite a vibrant activity. You, so you didn't kind of need to leave Canada in some regards. But yeah. there's there is a there is an opinion that is very truth truthful about that. Um, I sometimes do wonder. But then I also realize that Canada also has a glass ceiling. So there's a very real experience. I mean, it's it's different for everybody, first of all. Like that's the first caveat. It's different yeah. for everyone. But there's a very real experience that a lot of the American shows that come up to Canada to shoot, their leading actors and their like large recurring actors are 
for the most part, cast out of LA. So they still bring up American talent to shoot on Canadian show or to shoot on shows that are shooting in Canada because they're still American shows, right? When it comes to, uh, in America, they call them co-stars in in Canada, they call them actor roles, but like actor principal roles, guest stars, co-stars that are maybe one or two days of work or one or two episodes, they will cast those more locally. So when I was living in Toronto, I was going out for whatever I could across the board. And the roles that I was booking were kind of consistently within what we would call like large principle or like a guest star. Right. Um, Because the larger roles were even though I would audition for series regulars and I would audition for like large recurrings and whatnot nine times out of 10, they would still hire the American actors. So I got really frustrated because I felt like I kept hitting this glass ceiling and I was, I was being seen by Canadian casting and they, you know, the casting directors that I have relationships with, they really like me and they trust my work and I, I, I do good work. And I know that I do good work whenever I get called in, but I was like, I, was, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was moving in the direction that I wanted to. Like, I felt like I was being kept within a certain paddock in a way, right? So when I moved down to LA, it really opened my eyes to how this business works that I didn't have privy to living in in Canada. And the business is so different down here than it is in Canada. Look, don't get me wrong. I know, excuse me, I know if I had stayed in Canada, it's a game of attrition as it is here that I would, I would keep going out for the things I would keep, I would book and I would go out and I would book and I would go out and I would carve out a career in the Canadian system. And then eventually I would probably be able to like, you know, ask for more money, pitch myself or like be pitched for bigger shows and, and, you know, work my way up that way. But ultimately I'm telling you, like, I came to this country because I came to this city, not just this country. Let me rephrase that. This is an important differentiation. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Very important differentiation. I came to this city because A, this is where the decisions are made. B, this, and when I had this realization, it was game changer for me. Los Angeles is the city where dreams have currency. People believe in dreams here. There's anything that a person could imagine themselves wanting to do. Yeah. You can come here and do it and nobody will throw shade. Nobody will poo-poo it. Nobody will do anything because everybody is here who has come here has come with a kind of dream some kind of vision for themselves. And that's what this city lives and breathes off of in a way that no other place I have ever lived. And I have lived in a lot of different places. That to me is, is magic. That's, that's, that's like stardust to me and being around it, being in it, knowing people who are, and being one of those people who came down to pursue a dream and like seeing my dream come true in ways I could never have imagined. And, and, you know, in some ways 
bigger than I imagined and other ways, maybe not so big or, you know, faster or slower or whatever. Like the version of the dream I came down with has morphed because dreams are amorphous and seeing other people experiencing their version of this is like, it's fire. It is really fire. I hear you. I hear you. And yeah, you're right. Dreams are amorphous. But like, this is the thing. I get, like, you're not saying it, but I get this vibe. I'm, I'm most probably 99.9% .9 wrong. Like, this is the thing. Yeah, you're an actress and everything like this. Yeah, advocate. But it's like, I get this vibe that you're an actress today. But I don't think you, like, you've got your eye on a different type of prize for tomorrow. Am I right or am I wrong? And what if you have got a different prize, what is that different prize? Well, your instincts are sharp. And one of the things I have claimed to never be is a one-trick pony. Okay. And I like to describe it this way, that I came to this place, my entry point was as that of an actor, but I'm bigger than that. I, I, I really do believe that my purpose in this world is as a storyteller. And there are so many different ways of telling and creating stories. Writing is a big part of what I do now, creating content that, and it's taken me some time to really start owning my voice and my perspective because for the longest time I was like, yeah, but nobody wants to hear like la da 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 about my version of the world. And then I started realizing, no, that is exactly what we need more of. We need more people telling their versions of the world because the versions that we've been fed for centuries discounts the experiences of people who look like me and believe like I do. And, you know, I'm a South Asian Muslim woman and I am sorely underrepresented in, in the media. So if I am in this business, I have a responsibility. It's something that has, I don't know where it came from, but I've always carried this sense of responsibility that if I am here doing this thing, yeah. I have to use my privilege, my opportunities and my positioning to move the needle forward because otherwise it's that thing of like, if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Mm. And I'm not going to like what somebody else has to say more than what I like my words are right. Like more than what I have to say. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I started writing more and getting involved. This is where the advocacy stuff came from. The advocacy work came from because I was like, if I'm a, and I'm a natural leader too. So if people are looking up to me, then I now have a platform that I can speak to and I can talk about why specifically representation and inclusion is so important because if it's, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt said this, if you, if you can see it, you can be it. And for somebody like myself who didn't grow up seeing myself or hearing my name or seeing, reading stories about anything that was related to me, I know what it's like to not feel like you belong. So here I am proclaiming that my mission is 
to change that. And the other side of that is the stories of the people who came before me, the legacy of my ancestors. Again, if I don't tell their stories, nobody's going to know them. They'll die with me. And those are some of the most incredibly inspiring people, like the stories of my, my, even my own mother who came to Canada as a refugee when she was 15 and like made a life for herself and her whole family, you know, like these are things that they're not stories in a book. They're my lived stories. They live in me. So yes, you know, I am an actor. Absolutely. And I love being an actor. It's, it's so fulfilling. And I, and I, I've worked so hard and for so long to, to get to where I am that I, I, I take so much pride in what I do. And there's a bigger picture that needs to be painted where an being an actor is, you know, one, one piece of that piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Because like, this is the thing in like sort of 21st century entertainment and when it comes to the realm of writing like okay like there is like writing now has caught kind of fallen into three different realms in my opinion uh like commercial uh Mm -hmm. uh, commercial um artsy and inclusion Uh, Mm -hmm. and like this is the thing with regards to much of the writing if it can never really combine all three things. But, and I've, like, I have to say, but I have seen an example very recently. I don't know if you've watched The Last of Us. I've I've watched the first three episodes. Episode three, right? Yeah. It had commercial, it was artsy, and it was inclusive and it was done incredibly well. I can't, uh, um, I would say there's only a few bits of TV which I'm like, on, yeah, like I can't top that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of anything to top that. That was an example of it. Now, as you're a writer, like, are you going to be le- like, are you going to be leaning more commercial? Are you going to be leaning more artsy? Or is it going to be more inclusive? Like, that, okay. how do you see yourself. That is such a great question. And it's so topical in my life right now. So I've written this. So there's two things right now that are moving. So I have two projects. Well, technically three, but two really that are like really getting traction. Yeah. One is a feature film and one is a TV show. The TV show is inspired by my family's history, the migration from India to Uganda to North America. And it covers four time periods. It's, a, it's like a big concept show. Um, imagine Da Vinci's Code with Outlander and a bit of, I don't know, what's another good corollary? Like it's a, it's a hunt, it's like a global hunt for lost miniature paintings. So there's like espionage. It's all in the art world. Anyway, so it's this big concept show and there's lots that I want to talk about. It covers four time periods. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of research that's been involved. Mm -hmm. So I sent it to an executive at Universal Studios, who's a very good friend of mine for some notes because I, it's the script is the pilot is now ready. 
to be adjusted and to like really start moving forward. So I sent it to him for notes and he came back to me and his biggest comment to me was, Farah, you are so smart. You are too smart for your own good. The pilot reads like it's too highbrow. It's too, as you would say, too artsy, right? You're leaning too much into showing what you, telling what you know, as opposed to bringing it down into a, a realm that can be commercialized. Because if, if it's commercial, you have more of an audience and therefore you have more of an impact. And for me, I am way more interested in having a larger impact than a narrow, a narrow, excuse me, a narrow audience. Yeah. So I took those notes away and I sat with them and I was like, he is absolutely right. I, I have layered, I've, I've been trying to show, and here's something that like, I guess it actually speaks to me and so much of what I have processed over the last few years. I grew up being the smart girl not the pretty girl, not the popular girl, not any of those things. So I always had my smarts and my athletic skill to, to lean on now in my, at my age and, you know, at my stage of my career, the legacy of that still lingers where I'm like, well, I have to show people that I'm smart because that's the only way they're going to take me seriously, especially because I'm an artist. Like I have to show that I'm a smart artist. Mm. And so when I, when I look at that particular project, I go, I'm now reframing it for myself. And I'm going to have to do a, I think a page one rewrite, like it's going to have to completely change so that I can bring it down to, or like bring it into a form that people will be easily, will be able to consume it more easily, but in a way that still maintains the integrity of the story that I want to tell and the impact and this and the messaging that I want to share, which is what that episode of The Last of Us has done. Mm. It's like, it's not the characters talking about all of these things that have happened. It's the guy going to get the resources, putting them together, us watching him set up these booby traps and like watching him eat, looking at all the monitors, right? Like we're watching him do these highly sophisticated things, but nobody's explaining it, right? We're just taking it in. Mm. That is like, when we talk about excellent TV making, that to me is like a model of what I want my show to be, where it's like, we don't have to explain all these things, but we can show them in a way that gets people interested and hooks them into the story because they're, they're invested in the characters roundabout way of saying I think inclusion can be on all levels I, I for me inclusion is just like the baseline that's it's just what has to be done like there's no excuses anymore inclusivity has to be on the page like it has to be there whether it's more commercially viable or artistically driven I th I think there's a way I believe there's a way to have elements of both without feeling like you're selling out completely and, you know, going so highbrow that people are disconnected from it. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. And like this is being inclusion with like, like great character development, as you mentioned, I think is the sort of like fundamentals, like it should be the fundamentals, but 
Uh, I would say in a lot of stuff which tackles inclusion, a lot of, well, not just inclusion, just basically, you, you made mention with regards to the streaming like realm era we're in, where I think a lot of the sort of fundamentals of good storytelling have, um, I'm not trying to get you into trouble here, it's just <laughs> that I uh, have, I think, been kind of lost in the wash just to sort of get things out quickly. Mm-hmm. And therefore, what you get is not the most ideal well, television, film, or entertainment in general which I imagine there are a number of actors out there who are like, come on, <laughs> give it like, come on, we're better than this. Come yeah. on, guys, you know? Oh, so true. My girlfriend and I were talking about that last night, actually, about how, like, you know, there's a certain genre of content that cr- gets created that's like really quick. It's like middle of America kind of audience it has its place. It's important for what it offers, which is essentially comfort and familiarity. And that's when we are in times of turmoil, that's where we go to, right? We need that kind of content. Yes. But at a certain point, like from an actor's perspective, hundred percent from the actor's perspective, there's for me anyway, and for a lot of my peers, a lot of the people that I, I, I speak to and a lot of the other actors that I'm friends with, we can very easily make a very healthy living making certain kinds of content and just being okay with it. And there's that's great because that affords a certain kind of life as well. Like if you know you're getting a regular paycheck, if you know that you're on a show that has like 12 seasons behind it, like that's that's not meaningless. Like that's super important for a lot of people. Um, there's the other side of it too, which is, specifically from this perspective of a writer for me I'm like I can't I can't write that kind of content I've tried <laughs> I oh. gave myself I literally I gave myself an exercise to write a movie like a movie of the week and I just like I thought I succeeded and then I sent it to an executive to read and give me notes and that was her first note too you're she goes you're too smart for this and I'm like Ah, can I not get anything? Yes, I like, can. Okay. I just want the bottom common denominator. But she was absolutely right. Like my natural instincts are to lean into more sophisticated storytelling. And I think what streaming has done on the flip side is it has made us as audiences more acutely aware of what interesting characters are like, what more fleshed out story arcs are like we are a more discerning audience Mm. um, because we are a more sophisticated audience than we were even 10 years ago right so you know I I think a big part of my journey right now has been about embracing these are my skill sets like I'm not going to pretend like here's the other part of it I don't play dumb very well like if if I get an audition to play somebody who's like not the smartest tool in the shed. I struggle with that because I know that I come into the world with this energy of being an educated person because I mean, that is what I am. Um, But I just know that like, I 
naturally lean into and and gravitate towards roles that tend to be either more educated, uh, higher status. And I mean, this has nothing to do with any kind of judgment. It's just what I know about myself and what I'm more consistently booked for. Same thing goes for writing. Like I'm not, you know, I did this, I did this exercise, even I've written a children's show and even the children's show, it's an animated series. And even the writing in that is relatively sophisticated, but through the lens for a toddler, like it's still age appropriate, but it's still smart. Like that's what Disney does. So, or Pixar, Pixar does that phenomenally. If you watch any Pixar movie, there is, they call it co-watching, right? Parents love it because they're getting all these like higher level references and the kids love it because they're getting the, like the fun and the color of it. Right. That to me is like, that is the dream right there to create something that is like a Pixar where it hits completely different demographics, but equally successfully. Yeah. But with Pixar, the way I always see a Pixar film, especially in their early stuff, like, yeah, they did adult cartoons where the kids could actually come along. Because yeah. look, I don't care what anyone says, like, yes, like the sort of, like the crisis of a toy in Toy Story. <laughs> like, realization of reality. And like, yeah. and like you you go through it all and like Ant's life where it's like, and yeah, yeah, you're just working. Like, and oh, wait, yeah. Wait a second. Okay, me like me personally, it's a low key way of like trying to unionize the whole world. Like Bugs Life. <laughs> I'd say. And, I'm with you. I'm so with you. Yeah, and like you know what I mean. You had Wally, other things, and then like what really sort of like the sort of Calvinization of it all was, and like one of the most deep, meaningful beginnings. Of any film you'll most already see. Can you do you know what that is? Tell me. Up with not one word said. You saw like the meeting. Yes. You saw how a friendship began, then basically how a life unfolded between two people, how that life was like, yeah, all the little things which could throw things off in life, and then like, yeah like tragedy because they can have like bear children and but they're getting over it like yes we'll travel and the little things which over the course of time before you know it yeah, yeah. like you're old you're gray and then sadly the parting of the ways happen mm-hmm. and you got a full rounded meaningful story played out in a 10 minute time frame may not even be 10 minutes it might be shorter but without a word being said for most of that time and you got it you understood it so yeah so that's why i say pixar is adult films just where the kids can tag along so it is highbrow and like look and if you can get that down yeah absolutely Right. It's yeah, absolutely powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, 
You know, the other thing that I, again, take very seriously in terms of a sense of responsibility is in this business, the media is the largest disseminator of ideas and opinions. People will consume ideas passively through watching TV or watching movies, especially children. So inculcating, not inculcating, but like nurturing ideas in children that are going to support them as they grow up. That to me is like, again, huge responsibility and really exciting because kids have a, like we, we, were, we were talking about representation and inclusion, right? Oh yeah. For the longest time, I, I really believed that I was in this business and I was creating content for my younger self. And so that little, little girls or little boys or little kids who looked like me could see me, excuse me, could see me and, and feel themselves reflected. And then I took a step back one day and I started because I was developing this kid show and I started really watching kids content and it is incredibly inclusive, incredibly diverse storytelling. It's adult content that needs a real shakeup. So that's, that was a moment where I essentially expanded and I was like, I don't need to focus on kids content. Like kids are doing okay. The kids world is, is being fed with a very nutritious meal. It's the adult content. It's the grown-up content that we need to recalibrate and, and do better at. Like I was scrolling through Netflix not too long ago and I have a policy where I refuse to watch shows that are entirely about white male perspectives. I just, I, I like, I'm not interested. My, my money is in what I watch and that's my impact. My time, my money is directed through what I watch. And I, I mean, I watched a few shows that I'm like, okay, everybody's talking about it. I should watch it. So I watched it and I'm like one or two episodes in I'm done. Now I know what the concept is. I can talk about it, but I don't need to invest for me. It's way more important to put my money where my eyeballs are. So if I believe, which I do, that representation on screen is important and I am in this business to move that forward just so that I can see content that reflects me and my people and my experiences. I have to be, I think anyway, I have to be supporting the content that's doing that. Mm. I can't just like you know, be lazy about it and and just watch whatever, you know what I mean? So I also take viewing very seriously. My parents and I, we were, um, I was visiting them a few months ago before the holidays and my dad loves anything history. He's a total history buff. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to watch this war movie set in like World War II or something. I was like, dad, do we have to watch a bunch of white dudes fighting? in a movie you know is gonna how it's gonna end can we not watch something that maybe reflects us a little bit more like so that our actions re- reflect our values I'm not saying you have to do this all the time you know I don't do it all all the time but like just being mindful about it have making a concerted effort 
to and a consciousness around it to to consume content that is reflective of my values. And I don't remember what we watched and said, but we ended up having this really interesting conversation about how we choose what we watch. And I and I said to him straight up, I have a really hard time passively consuming content because I'm in the business. And also because I don't want to keep watching stories about people that I don't necessarily connect to or that I want to see less of those stories and more of other stories. And so if I can, again, put my time and my eyeballs and my money into the avenues that reflect me better, I feel like that's also a way of supporting those filmmakers and those creators in the same way that I would hope people do for me. When people ask like, what are we, what can we do? There's a big machine. What can we do about it? Well, that's one of the things we can do is pay attention to what you watch. Like what I would simply say, like, because like, this is the thing. And like, I think sometimes this is where like inclusion and like commercialization sometimes fall apart because mm-hmm. like your dad like was like yeah let me watch this world war ii like film tv show like yeah you were like it's a bunch of white dudes like yeah. doesn't matter like because your dad was going to be entertained he was going to enjoy it like the whole thing is like that's where i sometimes think inclusion material fucks up big time because mm. they don't actually like it's like you're if you're too busy just trying to give out the message without like being entertained and at that engagement there, then you could have the best story in the world. But if it's not sort of connecting on many sort of different levels, Mm -hmm. because look, your dad didn't care. It was about some white guys. He was just like, I enjoy this. I'm going to be entertained. And that's large sways of people. And with regards to, I think, a lot of Hollywood today, with regards to entertainment, they kind of ignore what the past of Hollywood was with regards to the business sense, with regards to the connection and entertainment to build what is new, this new inclusive thing, which I say, yeah, bring more inclusion in, but like, you know what I mean? Do all of this, like, yeah, make it that, yeah, like your your future child will be able to see like their faces represented as the hero or the villain or however they want to be seen. They can point to a number of different examples of that. My child, like, yeah, like Thomas's child, whoever, yeah. But if you're like if the message is just like it has to be inclusion, but there is no entertainment, there is no sort of like, yeah, that sort of realm of commercialization, what goes with it. Mm-hmm. Like rather than having sort of bold, big IPs where like, yeah, many a child can look at themselves and go, This is who I'm gonna be, and like this is how I see myself. Like for that that window of time when all kids like, uh, I'm a dinosaur. Raw. Okay, yeah, off you go. But that won't happen. And it's a case of, yeah, people have a moment in the sun, but it'll be a case of 
anything which comes up where, yeah, people like me and you, which you go, yeah, this is going to be great because it's showing my, like my life, but there is no sort of commercial growth or like, like commercial, like connection to entertain, not just myself and yourself and people like us, but on the masses, then it's going to be a vet, like I would just say, it's going to be start, stop, and then our kids and our kids' kids will most of be having the same conversation. Yeah. Well, which is why I I really, I hear what you're saying and I so appreciate it because I think what you're saying is really spot on. Mm. And I think that's why it's so important that people like myself, like us, we are creating content not in in separate silos, but in that same lane. Like, I think it's really important that we are constantly looking at, we're looking back, what is, what worked in the past? Mm. What, did, what did other people do to make, to get us to where we are? And then also what is the future that we wanna see? So when it comes to, you know, making movies, for example, or TV shows or whatever it is, mm always making sure that there's an audience, right? That's like the hands down most important thing. Who is your audience is what everybody asks, right? Who are you making for? Who is going to come and see this? Super important. And I I really do believe that the synergy of those two things, your audience and your, and your intention for telling this particular story. And those, when those, this is going back to Pixar, right? When those two things come together, that is when we're not just, in an echo chamber or we're not just in a silo creating for a certain community or a certain type of experience. You know, I'm thinking of the the film, either everything, what is it? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes. Right. A perfect example of a critically acclaimed film with incredible performances, quite highbrow in terms of concept, but also so wildly popular and widely popular right? Like that's a beautiful example of that commercial viability and that inclusivity that, you know, you were talking about being coming together in a really balanced way that every, like everybody received it. You know, the message didn't get lost. It was everybody received it. And on various levels, people received it, right? From the, the artists to the everyday schmo. Mm. Yeah, because like this is the thing. I think this is with regards to South Korea and like its sort of like realms. Like, look, you mentioned everything all at once. Now, like, look, uh, Parasite about two two ah. years ago, and like, yeah, um, one of the largest shows which hit Netflix. Totally. So, like, you know what I mean? Like, can manage to build that connection and like, yeah, sort of talking about social issues which go on on a regular basis with uh, such a phenomenon and like yeah inclusive commercial and like yeah um squid games i would say yeah inclusive commercial artsy maybe a small bit but you know but you know it was a high concept right it was a very high concept absolutely and i think with regards to if more content can be produced like that I think mm-hmm. it will be a bright future for like, yeah, many a person like who looks like yourself and like, yes, like green, like polka dots or like, yeah, yeah 
everything I, I do is done. Absolutely. And like, you know what I mean? It's just one of those things where I think it's just, uh, yeah, the, the uncomfortable places need to be written about. The uncomfortable yes. places need to be discussed. And the yeah. medium of film has done it well um, many a times. And mm -hmm. I think it's a case of, yeah, I think people like yourself who are like who are trying to find their way at this present time, yeah, I think you can get there. I don't see it being a problem. Uh, I like this is the thing. I'm getting a sense more like you're gonna end like rather than make a film or make a TV show, you end you're gonna end up doing a novel rather than that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, because like this is the thing. You I, know what you say though. What's what's clever about that in a way is my manager and I talk about this all the time that all producers want now and studios want is established IP, right? They want books or now video games. So anything that already has an audience that can be adapted for screen, that's like, I'm constantly looking at books in a different way now. I'm like articles in the newspaper. Oh, like, yeah, basically, um... You know the Underworld series of films? Yes. Okay, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's a brother who, like, in the first one, he was, like, one of the main werewolves. He okay. did a graphic novel of Underworld, first of all, and, like, yeah, he does a number of graphic novels, does a lot of work in the sort of comic book realm. But mm -hmm. that's how he gets a lot of his, like, concepts out there. Um, mm -hmm. Like, one of the things, like a character you did for Marvel uh, comics, it's like there is this character called the Blue Marvel. Like okay. he deliberately made, like deliberately made it. I uh, can't remember what the like his persona, like his alter ego is called, but he del deliberately made it so there was a black powerhouse character which could sit down at the table with four Superman, like, you know what I mean? Like all of the heavy hitters. And like this guy is like, if they, if they ever brought him to the MCU, it would be ridiculous because you would have to have something so strong, so powerful, like to be like, oh uh, yeah, it would just be like pointless. Like, yes, if they like, <laughs> met, they, they could go toe to toe for ever and again. Uh -huh. But he did that to like go right. But he was like, I had a plan. This is what I wanted to do. But he did it in a way which was like commercially viable for Marvel. Yeah. But it was a case of, yeah. He comes up with lots of different intricate ways of getting the point across. Mm. And yeah. Um, guy from the Smashing Pumpkins, Umbrella Academy. So you know, oh. I mean, yeah. So, um Oh. Um, Billy Corgan, right? I think so. I think so. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, like this is the reason why I think, yeah, I could see you doing the novel. I can definitely. Mm. I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. I'm into it. Yeah. Like, final question. Like, because. Okay. Like, yeah. Bring it. Yes, I will bring it. I will bring it. Now, if I, like, if I went, you have three paths you can go down, but like you can only, like there's three options, but you can only go down one path. Like, okay, actor, writer, or producer. 
Which one would it be? It would be an actor. Mm. And I'll tell you why. For me, what is the most powerful thing is the communion between performer and audience. Mm -hmm. On stage, that connection is live in real time, literally in the same physical space. The storytelling is there. The, the I mean, producing, making it happen is only, is not really a part of it, but <clears throat> there is an element of getting everything in order as a producer would, managing the business, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, there's that theater experience, which is live in real time. On screen, there's a there's a delay, right? Because you you shoot and you shoot out of order. So it's a completely different framework. And then you have to wait. And then if it's a TV episode, the episode comes out or the show comes out. If it's a movie, the film comes out. And then you get that communion again in a different way with the audience. So for me, what I find the most powerful part of this entire business is that connection, that communion between the artist and the audience. That to me is hands down way more fulfilling and exciting and meaningful mm -hmm. than the lead up to it. So that's what I would say. Okay. Okay. Like, yeah, I'm intrigued to see like, if I ask this question in like three to five years time. <laughs> okay. Like, oh. All right. Yeah. Like it. Perfect. We'll circle back and, and see what happens. Oh, oh we shall see. <laughs> yes. Done. You're on my radar now, Farrah. You're on my right. radar now. Um, right. Farrah, how can the lovely people out there find you on these interwebs? Uh, I would say the most, the thing I'm the most, present on is instagram uh it's very easy it's at fa underscore me so the first two initials of my name um and otherwise it, you know if you search my name i pop up in all the usual places so and um, you can find me on tv like you said at the beginning on quantum leap and the third season of c uh, and actually what i'm super pumped about which i'll give a little plug is uh, I'm voicing the lead of a video game oh. called Thirsty Suitors. Uh, it's really fun. It's going to be coming out in June because we still have to finish the voice recording. Um, and what's really special about it is that it's the first South Asian storyline in a video game. And it's, it's about this young woman and she goes back home because her sister's getting married. And every level of gameplay is an ex from her past. And she has to find a way of reconciling with her exes. Uh, so the, the log line for the game is disappoint your parent, battle your exes, disappoint your parents. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really, really excited for this game to come out. Um, it's also really meaningful to me because it also talks about uh, issues that are very present in the South Asian community. In, in fact, other communities as well. Like uh, there's, gender identity there's shadism there's traditional family values versus modern um communication styles like it's it's a really it's a really clever but really fun game oh and the gameplay is dance battles 
skateboarding and cooking challenges. So there's also like recipes that you can, Indian recipes that you can pull from, from the game. Okay, I think I'll be down for the dance battle. I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> it's not going, or if I did cook, God knows what would happen. <laughs> um, we shall see. We shall see. Um, it is, it's it's going to be really fun, though. So it's called Thirsty Suitors. Thirsty Suitors. Mm, you hear yeah. it, people. Come June. Mm. There you go. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Barra, it has been a joy, a pleasure, and a delight to have you on the show today. Thank oh, 100% likewise. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, and I'd like to say thank you to you, my friends, my life warriors, for sticking with us to the end of the show. Please stay well, stay safe, be awesome, be excellent, be fantastic. Be all the positive bees you can be in this world and then some. And remember, shoot for the stars. Peace, and we are...